The Persistent and Nasty podcast is a series of interviews and informal discussions with inspiring women and other marginalised voices in theatre, film and beyond. From actors to activists, we aim to amplify these voices and invite the world to stay nasty. The Persistent and Nasty podcast has teamed up with We Edition to offer our listeners 25% off monthly subscription. Head over to We Edition and type in NASTY, all capital letters, 25 at checkout. I have said it before, I will say it again. We Edition really are the future of casting. And also you can make money while being a member on the site. You can um, be a scene partner for people and you can help with accents. You can just generally help each other out. And it's a really important thing for us to do, especially during these times and just a lovely way to have community. Our other offer for our listeners is still with Backstage. Backstage are offering our actors 12 months free subscription. You heard that right, 12 months free. If you follow the link in the description box for casting directors, you can post free castings when you type in persistent and nasty at checkout. Hello, you lovely lot, and welcome to another episode of Persistent and Nasty. This week's episode, Misha and I sit down and chat to the amazing, amazing director and human being that is Georgie Banks-Davies. Georgie is the lead director on the new Sky Atlantic show, I Hate Susie. I'm recording this on Thursday the 27th in the morning, so the show actually comes out tonight. The first two episodes will be out tonight on Sky Atlantic, and then you can binge watch it as of tomorrow, which is Friday, uh, on Sky Atlantic and Now TV. I am ridiculously excited about this show. It uh, stars Billy Piper and was written by Lucy Preble. And actually, Billy Piper and Lucy Preble were the co-creators of the show. I think you guys will also, if you haven't watched it yet, be as excited as I am about it when you hear Georgie talk about it. Georgie is amazing, totally inspiring, and really is, I think, the definition of persistent and nasty, which is amazing. Before I move on to the episode, just want to say, hold on till the very end. I've got a little bit of extra information for you this week. Um, that would be wonderful. But until then, as always, sit back, relax, get yourself a cup of tea, vodka, gin, wine, water, whatever your tipple is, and enjoy. It's this thing, isn't it? Working from home in lockdown, nobody actually takes a break when they need to take a break. But yeah, yeah. not that we're yeah. in lockdown anymore. But yeah. Um, it's sort of like we still are somehow. It does, doesn't it? Like nothing's quite, nothing's quite the same. It's kind of like a limbo as well. It has that kind of sense of it's not quite this and it's not quite that. We're just floating. Purgatory. Drowning a word. little bit. <laughs> <laughs> Have you been to a pub yet, Georgie? Oh, I've been to loads of pubs. I have. <laughs> how is it? I, I, I mean, yeah, well, I was in Switzerland like about about two months ago, now for a month. Um, I got oh back about God. a month ago and, and so, and it was like nothing ever happened there. I was working there and it was, so that's what got me back into a sense of like normality. And I came back yeah. so less scared, actually. 
yeah, because it felt normal, I guess. Because it felt normal. And, you know, it's shockingly how quickly you just sort of like trigger back to what you knew. The caution is still there, obviously, but it, yeah, it's, it's weird. Um, so since I've got back, yeah, I've been to loads of pubs. Great. <laughs> it's weird because, you know, during lockdown, it's like, oh, why did we even go to the pub? This is just as much fun. We can sit in the garden. You don't have annoying people around. It's cheap. <laughs> it's wonderful. Then you, then you can visit friends. It's like, this is, I mean, now we really don't need to go to the pub. Yeah. Now we're with our friends in a garden drinking cheap. It's wonderful. Pub opens like, oh my God. Where have you been my whole fucking life? <laughs> I don't know Can what I it actually, is about pubs, but they're like magical, mystical places. I love the pub. Like the pub is one of my favourite places and I'm not quite there yet. We went to the pub, me and Misha and Louise, um, when we could in Scotland just go outside. And that was lovely. And it was like two hours and I was like, that was cool. And then like a few days later, we were allowed to go into actual indoor pubs. And I went with my friends and I was like, at first I was like, oh, this is a bit... Oh. And then I was all right. And then I was like, okay, now it's time to go home. And I haven't been back out since. And I love the pub. But also <laughs> I did have, I did order a rum and a, what did, we, what did I have? A, I had a rum and apple juice. And I was like, is there actually any rum in this? Because uh, clearly my house measures are way bigger <laughs> than what they're doing in there. <laughs> yeah. I feel like you need to just get so pissed that you're no longer anxious before you go to the pub. And then you can go to the pub and be like, that's fine. I'm I'm chilling. I think it will change as soon as it gets too cold. You know, the whole thing is like you can just be outside. And it's such a London, as I'm sure it probably is with you guys, such a London street drinking culture. Yeah. You know, you just stand outside. But as soon as that's not the case, I think I might be a little bit more cautious. I think definitely in Scotland, once uh, I mean, I say that, but we've not had much of a summer. Yeah, it's always cold in Scotland. Guys are just nails anyway, right? It's like you're made of steel. Yeah, totally, totally. We're made of steel. No, actually, we had lovely April and May, which is, you know, when nobody could go anywhere. We were like all sitting out our back doors like, oh, it's really nice. Anyway, um, Georgie, welcome to Persistent and Nasty. We should just um, let you fill the listeners in on who you are, a little potted history about yourself. Firstly, thank you for having me. Um, So I'm Georgie Banks-Davis, director. I've, I guess I'm lucky enough to say I've always been a director. Believe it or not, I don't think I've ever had another job or been oh, paid really? to do anything else. Well, except well, for right. pre, pre-film school, you know, like we all do. I did a milk round and washed cars and <laughs> worked, worked in milk CNA. <laughs> you know, I did all those things in school. So it's unfair to say, yes, I was a director out the womb. But as a paid adult post-film school, I never had another job, which is kind of incredible. I sometimes pinch myself about that. But I, um, I'd always wanted to be a director from when I was like a kid, four years old. I very distinctly remember going to the cinema and being like, what's this magical place? And I didn't grow up in a family that sort of came from that industry at all. And, and I didn't, yeah, I mean, it was felt very distant to me, very disparate because I grew up in a working class family in Leicester and it's like you, filmmakers don't come from there, you know, from, mm. from that, especially female ones. So, um, but I was just obsessed. So it kind of, it was just the only thing that has ever that would ever had ever been a focus in my life and I could for as long as I can remember so I sort of guess I naturally found my way to film school because of that passion and I was luckily trained as a teenager by a filmmaker in London which helped me get into film school a little bit earlier um and and then when I left film school I was actually 
you know, I was like 21 and I, they're like, what movie are you going to make? I was like, I don't even know who I fucking am. I don't know. <laughs> you know. And I've never been a great writer. And I think that the, the British film system in particular sort of very much supports the indie or did, it's definitely changing, but supported the indie kind of like writer director when mm. you're trying to make a feature film particularly. And if you don't write, you're sort of left a little adrift in that system. And I don't, I'm just, and I think a lot of directors, if given the choice, wouldn't write. It's just, it's often the way to make your first film. Um, But I was at that point just like totally enamoured with the lure of um, advertising. I thought that these, they were like little mini films where you could play and have fun. And when you have no idea who you are or what you want to say when you're 21 and I've been making films for a long time up to that point. So I'd sort of gone through all my teenage angst and all my, you know, and, but serious things like the first deaths that you experience. And mm. I had friends who'd committed suicide. I had friends who'd been in tragic accidents. I'd had, you know, all this stuff and you get it all out for your filmmaking. You sort of pop out the other side, like some sort of semblance of an adult, like, okay, well now I've just got to be an adult. Cause I don't know what else to say now. Um, and then so I, yes, I was just sort of drawn in by the mystique of advertising. So I went straight to the BBC and got a trainee director um, job in short form in their advertising department, their marketing, what they would call it, their marketing department, creative department. Um, and, and from that, yeah, I just sort of naturally then found my way over into, um, from the training there, over into advertising with a stint in the advertising department of CNN, which I have to say was very formative for me and really, I think is probably answers to the reason I make the sort of stuff that I make. And because they sent me around the world from the age of like 23 to the most incredible places from war zones to like, I don't, to to sitting under the net of a Celtics game, you know, in Boston, like the most extreme places um making films for their brands and making advertising for, and and just like you know hit the ground figure it out it's like it's a very creative company in a lot of ways so, and it's obviously known as a news network but they mm. but they have a division which is nothing to do with the editorial which just looks after the advertising and and that was a very like was a real making of me as a director i i, I just honestly think it's like you can't throw anything at me now and i wouldn't know how to deal with it because you know when you're being shot at you figure it out <laughs> like, it's like okay um maybe we should tell the story like this duck <laughs> you know it's kind of it's yeah, kind I, think, of, I think that might you know <laughs> <laughs> it sort of teaches you to keep you on your toes um Look, you were like talking about scottish people being made of steel like <laughs> weather and you're like, yeah, I, went, I went straight to being out. shot out. I think I'll hold, I think I'll keep the Hezbollah hostage story until the end. Um, but I, but, but um, this is turning into a long story. Sorry. No, but no, it, not at all. Keep t- no, it's great. But I, um, yeah, I mean that's the sort of a bridge version, and I then was freelance, and which I still am, you know, as a director in advertising, and became. Um, I'd like to think sort of quite renowned and commercially across the world, um, represented across the world and make a lot of big brand commercials for a lot of big brands. And I still, I, and I love it. I think it's like a wonderful place to play um, still as a filmmaker. But I realized probably around five years ago, it's like, I was like, I, oh, I'm very far off my course because my course is I need to be making feature films. It's what I've wanted to do since I was four years old. Like, where, whoa, hold on. And I think to be successful in any of the creative arts and particularly as a director, you have to give it like everything. It's like life and life and a job seems to exist. It's just, that's one thing. And, and that's amazing if you get paid to do what you love. You know, it's incredible. Because I always say, 
even if I worked in a, in a shop, I would still be making films when I'm not at work, you know? So I get to yeah. be at work and do what I love. But it is a consistent thing and you have to be working incredibly hard to reach sort of um, a level of success, I guess. And which I'd done in advertising, there's sort of like one day was like, oh, but the, this, this, um, this other path just feels very, very, very far away from me. And I'd always been trying to sort of like get in to the organisations. Out of film school, I'd been, I guess, a part of like, the well, by the organisation, I mean the arts organisations in the UK, which was so, so wonderful that we still have and that were fun mm. filmmaking. So straight out of film school, I made two short films, um, which were financed by the Arts Council of Wales. And I, um, because I lived in Wales at the time, and I, which lottery funding, you know, and I was a part of those institutes, but it, it, I just felt like I'd gone so much further away from that that I tried to come back and it can feel very intimidating, actually. It's like often you're just sort of like looking through the windows, like, hey, hi, knocking on the door, you know, people are like, yeah. well, I don't know who you, don't know who you are. Like, well, I made an Audi commercial. They're like, yeah, so fuck off. <laughs> Cars, so what? Like, where's your film? You know, where's your script? And um, so it felt incredibly difficult to sort of like re-gauge back, back in. And, but I had, and and I think I had consistently up until that point been making short films and I sort of looked, I sort of stopped and took a breath and looked back and was like, oh, I haven't made a film in like two years, three years, which was big for me. So, um, yeah, I guess it was probably about three, no, it was a bit early in that, it was probably about three years ago. And then a friend of mine was a writer and she had written her first ever sort of short, her short film script. And she'd written it as a comedy skit. And I, she was someone that I knew very, very well. Um, Myra, Myra Appiner is her name. She's an amazing writer. And I read this and I was like, this isn't a comedy skit. This is an incredible drama. Can I, just, can I just make it? And it sort of reignited something in me. And at that point, I felt like advertising has sort of like taken, um, I guess like taken some skill that I'd had it previously with actors away from me because I was having to like respond very quickly. And often it's like, make them smile more. He looks angry. You know, you can be, I felt myself getting into that trap of almost going like, okay, smile more, which is just like the worst directing in the world. It's awful. So I was specifically looking for a project to really explore something with actors where they were front and center and that there was no style over substance which is a lot of advertising you know I was like I'm going to strip myself bare I'm going to show the film world what I really am and I'm not going to let them judge me on a car ad you know I'm going to try and do so remind people like what I love and what I'm trying to say um but I'm also going to put absolutely zero expectation on it and if it's an experiment so I've I got my friends together and the joy of like shooting all the time is that you have many great collaborators and friends who will then come out and work with you and I'm very blessed to like have these people by my side I mean a director is only as good as the people they surround themselves with and anyone that tells you otherwise is a liar you know <laughs> basically <laughs> and I am um, um so I've just great friends and collaborators and we just made this very, I would say quite performatively, very experimental, like short, short film called Garfield. And I almost didn't edit it. You know, I was like, great, I've got it out of my system. This was so fun with actors. And, um, but I did edit it and we put it out and it got a little bit of traction. I would say people would watch it and fall. So, so people like people I knew or producer would watch it and fall in love with it. So I was like, okay, so there's something here, but festivals, particularly British festivals, 
So London Film Festival, uh, um, well, I'm not going to list them all. You know what they are, but all of the British festivals, except the, except the smaller ones, so like Discover, Underwire, um, they all rejected it. And we went internationally and it was pretty much like rejected, except for Palm Springs Short Fest, which is a very renowned festival. Mm-hmm. And so we, we took a premiere there. And I wasn't able to go, but the writer went and she was like, people, there is some weird traction. People kind of like this film. Like it's a real audience grabber. Like people, everybody wants to talk to me afterwards. Um, and still we were like, hmm, is it? Like we loved it. We had a lot of love for it and it did exactly what I wanted it to do. And when I say a lot of love for it, it's like not many directors love their work. I don't love my work, but this felt like it was belonged to the actors, you know, and I was very proud of them. And then, it's very, I was sort of prepping a commercial and production office in this one week and it was so strange. It was in November in 2017 and this, first of all I got an email from Underwire Festival saying, hey, uh, Mandeep has won Best Actress, can you come to the award, who's our lead actor, Mandeep Dillon, can you come to the award ceremony on Saturday? Don't tell her, but can you try and get her there? And then ding, the next email, I was like, hey, it's BAFTA, you're like long listed for Best Short Film can you like send us this file because we need to, uh, you know, now project it in the cinema for the judges. And then my phone rings and I'm like, from a weird number, like, okay, it's normal because I'm in production at the moment, pre-production. I pick up the phone and, and this woman says, hey, it's Katie from Sundance. And I'm like, what? It's Katie from Sundance. We absolutely love your short film, Garfield. We want to bring it to the Sundance Film Festival in January. I was like, fuck. <laughs> and, she, and then I, and the whole office went silent I was like yeah yeah, yeah. so uh, like so who is it thinking it's one of my friends like yeah fuck, like stop dicking about man I'm like I'm too busy for this shit and I ha- hung up and like and then Katie called me back laughing and she was like I love this this is the exact reaction that we so often get um no, no, look at your email right now. What, look at your email. I'm going to email you. I know you don't believe me because I've got a British accent, but I'm one of the programmers who lives in London. And then my email went ding and it was Sundance. And I was like, oh my God. And I like literally fell to my knees because my dream had been to like play at Sundance Film Festival. And, and, and what's incredible about Sundance Film Festival is that it doesn't want a pre- it doesn't need a premiere. It doesn't, all, the programmers watch the films, all of them. They don't like pre- you know they don't give it to sort of like um, the equivalent of readers I guess like where you then prejudge and a certain amount comes through to them they they didn't know you know there's this misconception I think particularly with Sundance it's like you have to know the programmers you've got to like be in you've got to have like a little like suggestion they they didn't know us they had no idea who we were we didn't have an in we'd forgotten we'd entered it been thrown in you know with the 20 bucks whatever it is entry fee and you read all these things that are like, you must have a poster, you must have a trailer, you got to know the programmers, you got and like, I mean, we had none of this, like nothing. And I, I always, sometimes I teach at film schools and I always tell the story. It's like, if you've got something that will capture the imagination, it will capture the imagination. Maybe don't get so wound up about social media and posters and trailers, mm. because if your brain's there, your brain's not where it should be, which is just making great work. Make great work and then, it's naive to say you you have you can't just like then it'll find its audience it won't you've got to do some work but but first of all make great work or what you want to make like you know because what's great work who knows but like make what you want to make um and and that I have to, it, it felt like at that point in my life it was like it was almost oh man this is gonna sound really weird <laughs> 
<laughs> but it was always like I, it, the universe had gone, okay. Oh no, you're fine. I'm just, I'm just, I'm just, I'm just putting you back where you belong. It's like, she sort of went, she just spun around and emptied her pocket change on me. You know, it's like, she just went, you were over here. I'm just going to bring you right back onto your path, Georgie, because you just swayed for a little while. Yeah. Because all of those glass doors that I was like knocking on just went whoosh, <laughs> wide open. All ev- the whole British industry, film industry, well, not the whole, but you know, the, the, the institutes were like, who are you? Because you are a British filmmaker at Sundance and we don't know who you are. Mm. That doesn't happen. They do know who everybody is. They're often funded by them, you know? Um, and it was a phenomenal response and it opened every door and the film got a phenomenal response when we were there and the industry in the UK gave us a phenomenal response to it. Um, and I think it had been helped by the BAFTA long list as well, because I think, and ironically, all those festivals who said no came back and were like, can we play Garfield this year? And we were like, no, you rejected us. And I had, and maybe it's naive of me, but I held quite firm to that. I was like, well, sorry, no, because that's not fair. It's like, you can't emperor's new clothes this. It's like, mm-hmm. if you don't think it's good, you don't think it's good. If Sundance think it's good, and now you think it's good, yeah. then I don't think you're good. <laughs> you know, I know that sounds awful, no, but it's I like, it's like you can't, it's some, yeah, and now it's like somebody else's um, turn, somebody else's time to like, have a go, to like enter the film festival. It's not fair to now give it to us because we're successful. It's, you know, it didn't feel right. Mm. So, but everything changed. Um, I've got great agents. I mean, the most, I have the most incredible agents, Roxana Adel and Alex Russia at Independent Talent, who are just phenomenal. And I think as a filmmaker in whatever way, position you're in, this partner in your career is like so important. And mm. I spent quite a lot of time thinking about that. And, but all of this sort of came out of Sundance and um, I, I got a great manager in the US, Kate Hertzvig, and and they just, then this team is there sort of like supporting you in your vision. And, but I can't, it's been a whirlwind since January, 2018. It's like, it's been a complete whirlwind from one, sh- you know, one short film. And, but I guess it's not one short film. That's the other thing. It's like hundreds of commercials, like dozens of short films, like, you know, and it's just at the point where I guess there's a different confidence. Like that film Garfield was, had nothing, no expectation in it. I just wanted to play. And when stripping all of that away, because my day job, I suppose, as commercials director is so highly pressurized by giving myself like just ultimate freedom as a director, we created something that really like captured the imagination, I think. Um, and which sort of brings me to where I'm sitting today, like five days away from releasing I Hate Susie on Sky Atlantic, which is a TV show written by Lucy Preble. I'm so excited. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm so nervous. <laughs> Lucy Preble and Billy Piper, and um, which all came about from my great agents and the exposure from Sundance, you know, and them seeing my film and, um, and, and I've spent the last, well, over a year now working on that project, which I was the lead director and directed six of eight episodes and, and built the world with them. Um, and lots of other projects that I'm working on as a result, which I mean, we really don't have time to talk about, but it's fantastic. But I think, I mean, that was such a long 
backstory but the point being never give up (laughs) like when it when it wants you it comes for you if you've been you know tenacious and curious and ambitious I guess yeah you were building your craft well I was just gonna say you were building your like style and I think that the fact that you you took so so much time in, in advertising and having that it did give you the time to grow and watch and learn and and experiment in different ways and I can imagine it's it's like formed you as a very like a different director than you would have been if you'd gone straight into filmmaking and and continued doing filmmaking I think so and I think the other thing is that it's um I guess it's like that David Beckham whatever it is 10,000 hour rule right it's like it just shoots so much so I remember being on set um I hate Susie really early on like week one I think and somebody in the crew saying to me this this is like kind of incredible and I was like what and they said well we they told us we had a brand new director because I'd never made tv before you know um so we're always a little bit tentative and nervous about that because like oh is it going to be a shit show this person won't know what they're doing um they were like but you're the most experienced person on this set it's like it's crazy and I was like well yeah I guess I am a brand new director but I know set etiquette like I know how to run a set I've been doing it for years I don't want to say how many years because I'm, you know, trying to disguise my old age, but (laughs) but I've been doing it for many years. And it's and I think you're right in that it going back to what I was saying about CNN, it's like, I mean, they really just taught us to like just make a story out of what's in front of you. It's incredible training. And and I think only. Yeah, only very recently I like real. I think I realised like what all of my work is about, but I hadn't realised that before. Even though I'd been doing it, I didn't know what it was. And when I knew what it was, it was like a sort of something that sort of like released in me a little bit. It's mm-hmm. like I could read things and understand whether I liked them and what thematically I wanted to do, or I could, or I could understand why I was doing certain things. And I think that's sort of sometimes that's right there with certain directors. It it's there when they're 20 and others it's like it's not you know it's there but you don't know what it is it takes you a while to figure it out yeah I, th- I think that's life isn't it though yeah <laughs> like and I think and maybe I'm maybe I'm wrong because maybe everybody else has but I do think if you're in the creative arts like some whatever role that is within it that it's in you whatever your work is going to be is in you you just might not tap into it and they're like it's like you see the universe turns you around and I totally love that and like emptied her pockets out I love that that's uh, <laughs> the tagline of the episode <laughs> and I are all I mean it. she did I mean that those coins were raining on me I was like what I was it so that's really like suddenly this all my whole life was suddenly relevant in this one moment people stop you in the street it's like you're a superstar you get given this amazing jacket Sundance Film Festival 2018, only the filmmakers get them, you know, there's hundreds, there's so many people there, thousands, thousands, thousands of people, but there's like 120 directors. You walk around this jacket, people are like grabbing you. Yeah. And look, I don't want to be famous, That's, that makes me sound like I'm some sort of weird narcissist, but it's like, but you're suddenly relevant because people want to talk about your work. And it's, and as a director, that's the sort of most joyous thing, I think, is like once you've put it out, whether it's good or it's bad, but to just have a discourse about it and thematically about it is always yeah. satisfying. I think, yeah, is when you're a creative, it's the discussion about it. It's the let's get into the nitty gritty of it and what makes yeah. it and what did, we, what did you discover as you were going along that path, um, whatever it is. Yeah. 
I think Misha's totally right in that sense of like your years and obviously what everything at CNN. Um, so obviously now I hate Susie. Yes, I hate Susie. <laughs> when did you <laughs> shoot it? When was it shooting? Um, so we shot in, we started in very late September and we finished in the middle of January. I shot for 57 days, I think, total. It's a lot. I mean, and again, I come from like, I shoot Germany for four days. So I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> you need comfy shoes for this. <laughs> yeah, uh, end of January? What? Oh, luckily, it was a pandemic and then you could have a wee uh, rest. Well, we didn't have a rest. I mean, we then did a, most of our post-production during lockdown. So, yeah, okay. which is, it brought us a whole new set of challenges. But, mm-hmm. um well, the funniest being that you never, I realise you never see your editor's face, right? You're always sort of like beside them or sitting, like most of the time I'm just lying down stressed, like looking <laughs> up at the back of them and uh, or pacing. I mean, I've got an amazing editor, Izzy Curry, who's just, she really puts up with my pacing. But in lockdown, I'm like looking at her because we're editing on Zoom and it's, I realise, like, you never see your editor's face, so you see all of their reactions to your mad ideas. <laughs> you know, they can't hide it <laughs> when you're looking at them. Um, but it brought its own challenges, for sure. And, and But I was very lucky on our hits. Well, I was lucky for, like, a million reasons. I was, like, a, a dream job to be hired on. An incredible writer, an incredible star in Lucy Preblen and Billy Piper, who co-created it who are the bravest women I've ever encountered in the arts and probably beyond, um, who really set out to like, we're going to do something that will shake up the way that you're used to watching television. And they did. And the first reviews, are, I quite, I'm kind of loving them because people, they're exactly what I wanted because people are like, oh, it's good, but it's annoying and it's stressful and this bit's really weird and shit and this bit's really amazing. Oh God, I don't know what to say. And, and that's kind of brilliant. Yeah. We always were like, mediocrity is a killer, you know, let's just, even if people hate it, let's just be bold. And um, so, but blessed in, firstly with them as a team, but talking back about lockdown is that I got to really build the team around me of collaborators, like in, in, a, um, in a way where I just got the right people that I'd always admired or had previously worked with, like Izzy, my editor. And, um, and again, like, it was different for television and the network as well. Like Sky Atlantic were in cr- and the production company, Bad Wolf was so supportive of that. They were like, sure, if we're going to take a risk with you, we might as well go ball all the way in. Like, you know, balls bet- to the world. <laughs> balls to the world, bet it all on black, you know, like just go like, there's no point in like, you know, evening up these chips, let's just go. And, and um, we, so, when you've got that team beside you, like even, for example, like the colorist, the guy who grades the film, he gives it its final polish and, and brings all the beauty that the director of photography has envisioned to life. It's the guy that I've worked with for 10 years. So when you're in lockdown and you are trying to do post-production remotely mm-hmm. and, the, and the guy, you know, literally polishing your show is the person who's been sat beside you for 10 years, it's like, there's a trust there. It's like, there's an unspoken thing. It makes that so much easier. Um, and but also people I hadn't worked with before, but I'd you know I'd really admired their work. Um, they we just became like a family, and we just like went at this thing together because it's the sort of thing that is was so ambitious. I mean, I hope when people see the show, they see its ambition. It it was 
it was so ridiculously ambitious. It's like you'd some days you'd be like, okay, I think we hit hundred percent, and Lucy would be like, yeah, but I want one hundred and twenty. You'd be like, like if everybody's sort of like good is here, it's like you just got to add fifty percent more on to even get close to what you know Lucy and Billy's good was, and that just kept us all on this. We'd we'd sort of start joking about that we're at war, and we're just literally a battalion fighting constraints of filmmaking which is money time resources Mm -hmm. you know all the things that kind of get thrown in your way um but what the beauty of like being sort of under-resourced in a way is that you can be braver and bolder it's like if people are taking because ultimately it's about risk right it's like if people are taking less financial risk then they let you be bolder I mean, and yeah. that's a sen- and then hopefully you don't have to do that the second time. It should be the way it's like, okay, it worked. So let's do it bigger now. Well, or let's just give you what you need to do it properly. <laughs> you know? um, but they, it, it was, it's such a, it's such a bold show and um, it's such a joyous thing to be involved in as a director because it's, it's told it's told across eight different emotions across eight different um, episodes, basically riding, uh, riding the wave of trauma and riding the wave of trauma. What a weird sentence. <laughs> How do you ride the wave of trauma? I don't know. That's what our show is kind of doing. And it, and across those different um, emotions comes with a different theme uh, thematically in the filmmaking. So as a director, it's amazing because you, you can't just like go, okay, this is the world. This is how we're going to shoot it. This is the lookbook. This is the style. And then kind of sit back into that. You can't, it's like, because I, I did that for the whole show, but then for the six episodes I directed, I then had separate six ways in which you do each episode and the way tv structures work which kind of most most surprising to me in some ways but makes total sense is that sometimes you're shooting four different episodes in one day which means you're like oh shit okay we're in the social realism drama app now oh fuck now we're in the french farce okay now we've got it sorry there's a lot of swearing on my set (laughs) and then it's no no do not worry welcome welcome (laughs) welcome and then and then it's like, oh, oh, hold on, we're into the weird surrealist uh, wank episode. We could talk about that in a minute, but you know, it's like, <laughs> but you, but you just, you literally, your brain, like, it cannot relax. And I remember my first AD, Paul Murphy, saying to me, you know, on every every show or commercial movie I've worked on, there's one day at least where you look at the schedule and go, okay, well, this is kind of like an easy day. He's like. Every single day that we have is like, it's not just hard, it's impossible. And then TV, it's another new term I learned, the, the unachievable day. They look at the schedule and they go, this is unachievable. And they'd always look at me and I'd go, huh, I don't know. <laughs> you know? <laughs> every day was an unachievable day and every day we achieved it in some way or another. You know, and you have to compromise. It's not to say that we, you know, didn't have to, but we just, but it takes stamina and energy and it takes a full commitment from those around you because if they don't believe in that ethos that we're trying to do something very, very, very special, then you can't do it. You've got to kind of collectively got to be on this. And it's, and I'm really aware of that, you know, with the team and with the crew, because, you know, as a director, you do it, you do it once, uh, maybe a year, and then you're working in post-production or you're in prep. But, but your team around you, are do, you know, they finish with you and then their crew on the next job. And if you're pushing those people at 100 miles an hour, 
they're doing that every day for the next director, you know, or the, but these guys really did. I think they really had a family that believed that we would make it something different and that we all, we all decided to like really push that um, to its limit. Um, and I'm really very, I'm so intrigued. It's, I'm getting quite frustrated because the reviews that are coming out now are just based on the first two episodes. Okay. And I think they're so, it traverses so extremely. And if you watch episode one, then watch episode eight, it's almost shocking how tonally different it is. That um, I'm almost a bit frustrated of being like, no, journalists, like watch it all. <laughs> you need to see the big picture. <laughs> Wait till the end and then wait till the end, because I really think episode eight sort of makes you feel quite differently about the neurosis. And I mean, it's like a slap in the face, episodes one and two. And to just not to tech out too much. But for example, like episode eight has half the amounts of edits in it as episode one. So it's just still it's just quiet. It's just reflect. It's called acceptance as is the emotion. And and I think that, that, you know, the general sort of reviews right now expect that this literally i mean it's so stress inducing first two episodes are the show but they're not the show you go on a real ride um they're a brilliant part of the show but they they're deliberately set up that way to then push you around in the car in this lead character's journey um it sounds like each episode needs its own review yeah maybe (laughs) (laughs) maybe take it each episode as it comes Maybe. And then but a I final mean, review at the end. And then, a, and then one at the end. But it's, but it's, of course, it's held together by the central character, but Billy Piper plays Susie Pickles, and she is just phenomenal. I mean, I read a review yesterday that said, the thing that you might not have realised, people, is that um, Billy Piper is the best working actress in the UK today, and this show will prove that. And, and I can't disagree. I mean, from working with her, she is an incredible actor. You can't take your eyes off her. And all that maybe you want to do, which you will see in the first episode, is just put the camera closer and closer and closer <laughs> to her and, that, and expose her. You know, she's so brave as an actor because I, the whole series is about being exposed. It's about, do you know the premise? Would you like me to tell you the sort of... Go for it. I mean, I, I have kind of read it but yeah let's let the listeners hear the premise of it so the premise is uh, that billy piper plays um susie pickles who is an actress and the character is an actress um who has been slightly on the wane in terms of her fame and she's in her mid-30s uh, which is probably suggested to be partly to do with that um and she's in a kind of mediocre genre show to which she plays you know sort of like uh the part that so many women get given of being like, there are, you know, two men in the lead, but you're the sidekick, um, which is of medium success. And we find her on a day in the first episode where she's just offered the dream job at this point in her career, which is all we know is it's a big Disney job. And in this, in this uh, height of like excitement, right when she's just like in this kind of like idyllic world, which is that she lives in the country house with her husband and her son, um, she, and her son is deaf. And we sort of set, establish all this in the first episode very early on in like 10 minutes, in the first 10 minutes. But you can see the cracks. You can tell that this isn't quite maybe what it seems. And, and in her joy of like, I've got the dream job of my dreams, you know, as a Disney princess. Um, she receives a text which um, 
that it, the news has dropped that there will be pictures revealed later that day. Um, her phone has been hacked of her in a sexually compromising positions, which Lucy Preble, the writer, was said was based on what happened to the women, you know, a few years ago, like Jennifer Lawrence being one of them. Yeah. And the trauma of that and the sort of exposing nature of that, but you, what, what happened afterwards, you know, none of us know. We all sort of like dive in. We're all guilty of like this, the fame of like, whoa, look at the headline. But what really happens to those women who are so exposed, so, so intimately and deeply exposed? So this happens. And of course, her world just like turns around and falls apart. And I don't think it's a spoiler to say because it's all over the trailers. Um, it's, it's clear from the pictures that it's not her husband. But that they are potentially recent photos. And in the first episode, right when this is happening, it's a, a magazine shoot pitches up into her house to do a profile on her. And she is desperately trying to unplug the Wi-Fi and keep the world together whilst her husband doesn't know what's going on. Her manager's ringing like crazy. You know, it is like, and the first episode is shock. And there's a piece of television of like, talk about an inciting incident. It's like, it's mental and it hits you in the face and you just ride through um, beat by beat what this woman's going through, trying to hold as this, as this literally this kind of like magazine shoot just like infiltrates every part of her house which is the metaphor essentially for the rest of the whole show, which is that she is owned by mm. the world because she's a public figure. And the really, the, the, what the show then tries to do is it traverses this trauma and it goes through a sense of like, who am I? I'm a woman in my mid thirties, but when I've worn so many different masks and she's been famous since she was 15, this character, Susie Pickles, when I, like, who really am I? Like, because I'm seen as one thing as a star, I'm seen as one thing as an actress, and they're different. Being a star and an actress are two different things, you know. I'm seen as one thing as a mother, as a lover, as an adulteress, as a, you know. And when you wear all these masks, it's like, really, when I take them all off and I look at myself in the mirror, like, who the fuck am I? Mm. And that's essentially the premise then of the show and navigating um Navigating that, I would say the engine and the storyline is about the hack, but really the, the show is about navigating this sense of like stepping back for a second, taking a big deep breath and going, okay, I'm in my mid-30s as a woman, what does this mean? Right. And I know that, I know that question. <laughs> <laughs> and it's a fascinating character study um, and, and to which Billy is just, an, you know, is an exquisite in her performance and I, and I hope that she you love her you hate her and I, th- I hope by the end she breaks your heart you know she breaks my heart I cry when I watch the last episode and I directed it it's like <laughs> it's like I know what I am doing to myself to make myself feel like that and it still gets it's like I watched it the other day with my girlfriend she was started crying and I was like and then I started crying and she's like why are you crying I was like I don't know and like I never cry at anything either and it's the performance is just, it, it, I'm almost, I think I'm crying because I, the, the joy of this, working with this actor. And her two other actors, co-stars, Daniel Lings and Leila Farzad, who are also a joy to work with and light up the screen in different ways. Um, and it's like a blessing as a director to get a cast like that. Um, so it's, it's a very exciting show. And even if people hate it, I'm really proud of it because we really did push it. Yeah, because it's but it's what's needed done though. It sounds like, I mean, lead director is a female, female lead, female writer. Callan cast it, so female cast and director. Obviously, um, you know, 
all of that and then you've got a female editor as well so these stories by women for everyone are really um, powerful at the moment I think you know we've just had I May Destroy Mm. You with Michaela Cole and Mm, like I just think it's I just think it's it's time and it's needed and the people that don't like it I think will be the ones that are scared for the change Mm. I think so too and I think I think it's also, you know, I'm very conscious as a filmmaker. It's like I hate the term female filmmaker. I never use it. A female director, I don't refer to myself in that way. It's like, because you don't say male director. No, because you're a director. Because I'm a director and I say I'm a director as a woman, you know, and I'm very conscious about the perspective and, and understanding my perspective and also as a queer woman, understanding my perspective versus the other perspectives you know in the world and I think when looking at a project I I think it's like we're so used to that male perspective um but we're used to it across the whole of the floor so to speak and by that I mean like the editor you know the director of photography and I'm very conscious when I'm like working with my crew that I get a, a that I get different perspectives so for example like I had a I had a male director of photography deliberately because it's like my I see it as a woman he sees it as a man and there are men in our show um you know and there is a perspective of the husband and and I had two editors it's fair I had is Izzy um Isabel Curry who did the majority of my eps with and then Joe Randall Cutler um so again I took a woman and a man and I worked with the three of us and they were very gracious to do this and it's the way I like to work in that they would cut their own episodes but we would always watch the first edits together and we would talk about them together and I would take Izzy's perspective and Joe's perspective and we would um and I'm very collaborative in the edit like that and I need that sort of from my editors and and Sometimes we would switch stuff. Okay, this is how he would cut it. How would you cut it, Joe? You know, and mm. and it switches. Perspective changes. And in, and Lucy and Billy, the other two episodes are directed by Anthony Nielsen. And again, they were like, let's let's see what it's like, especially because he's a standalone in their style. Let's see what happens when when a guy directs mm. it, directs all this lead woman. I mean, everything is about Susie Pickles at the heart of the show. And a young producer came to visit me on set and I remember she called me afterwards and she was like, I've never seen a set like that. And I was like, what? I mean, I didn't even think about it. And she said, it's completely 50, 50 and it's wonderful. And it just works. And it, and I have, I have to say that's very much thanks to Andrea Dewsbury, the producer. Um, But I didn't even think about it or consider it. It just felt right. And in the same way, I have to say, and maybe this isn't the right thing to say, and a lot of women directors don't believe it, they believe sort of the other, but I didn't want to crew up entirely women. And I know a lot of women are crewing up entirely women because they're like, you need to push the balance one way to like see uh, equality the other. And I get that as an argument. But for me, it was important. It's like, it just I want the best people at their jobs, but I will not discriminate on anything, you know. And and what happens is inherently there's just so much more choice because with men because they've they've always had the the privilege to get into those positions and to get the experience. But there are amazing women out there, and we and we just built a set that was really really fifty fifty, and it was so supportive, and it was um, it was amazing. I remember once like. 
I was walking down the stairs and someone was like humming that song. We need some more girls in, right? Do we need some? He was just humming. And I walked downstairs and went, there's too many men, too many, many men, too many men, many men. We need some more girls in here. And then like the, and then all the men started like singing it. And I was like, I really wish I'd get my phone out and like create this some sort of like backstage, you know, to hearing chorus, like your, your, your male like team just being like, there's too many men, too many men, too many men. <laughs> so like, I was like, this is kind of brilliant. We've like repurposed this anthem to mean something like entirely feminist. And they was, and the men alongside me, I mean, they were in every department, brilliant. And they understood what the story was about. And the male actors were brilliant and they understood what the story was about. So I'd like to think we have a show that, like, we, it's like you said, you know, it, we, it, you, you wouldn't think twice if everybody at the head of a show was a man, right? And we have exactly the same in a way. It's just one of the directors is also a man. And one of our execs, uh, the head of drama at Sky's Cameron Roach, he's a man. But beyond that, our exec at Sky is a woman. Our four executive producers are women. Our producer is a woman. Our lead director is a woman. One of our editors, well, it, the show has three editors, two of which are women. We're just rebalancing it. But then on the floor, on the ground, it's 50-50. Um, and isn't that what we want? Like, I mean, I know that for, for it's me, amazing. it's what we want. It's amazing. It's exactly as you've said about you want the best people for the jobs. And actually, there are a lot of women who are the best people for that job. And we want people to remember that instead of just presuming that the best person for the job is a man because they see him on a lot of sets. As, yeah, they've had the privilege of it. Yeah, just... and I suppose because I'm a woman, a lot of a lot of the women on our set, so our you know hair, our, our makeup and hair designer was a woman. Our, I'm thinking about the heads of department. Our production designer was a woman. Our costume designer was a woman. Um, but a lot of these women and beyond in, in the crew, I don't run a very strict hierarchical crew. I really run a sort of crew which is like we're making this together, and and I remember off particularly like Sophie, our third assistant director, saying it's so, um, it's so different. I've never worked under a woman as a director and it's so different because you just feel like you're a powerful force collectively together. And, and that really sort of stayed with me. And then a lot of the heads of department were like, it's really different. And I was like, well, how is it different? I don't quite understand because also a director is a director. I think I'd like to think I'd be the same if I'm a man, but how do I know? Because I don't know what it would have been like being a man in life and being whoever you are in life informs who you are as a director you know so it's probably naive of me to say I'd be the same but but I think a certain amount of it is about personality and and then some of it is probably about gender but but what was fascinating is how different they found it but they couldn't quite articulate why and I think that there is more of a it felt like they felt like there was more of a collaboration and a sort of safety to be brave actually Mm -hmm um to just really push it and that people won't, you won't get judged and that you won't fail i think that there was that that's what i sort of got the vibe from was like you you allow us to just be our best and it's sort of sad to think if that's the case with women on a set that's where the sort of efflons of it are men that they don't feel like that that they somehow feel i don't know this is a huge generalization it's a massive topic <laughs> yeah no, it, yeah but it, I'd certainly, from the feedback that I get, you know, I think that there's a sense that people feel like they can just really be themselves, actually. Um, I think it's women seeing other women in those positions of power and it validates them and it also gives them something to aspire to in a way that I think, and it's interesting because I'm sure 
if you had like if you put it on the other foot there would the men wouldn't be looking at a woman in power and not feel validated by it so i don't know why as a woman seeing a man in power that doesn't give us the same support or yeah yeah it's, it's really interesting isn't it because i have to also say the men on on our set and the men alongside me joe's editor tim sadell who was my dop who i could not have made this show without or realized or visualized it without i mean he was he is a genius and he took everything out of my brain and realized it you know incredible man um my colorist simone you know and and beyond that the crew the gaffer tc like this incredible men who i just my first assistant director, Paul Murphy, you know, the man, the other man, one side of me, one man, the other side. These men are wonderful men. Like, there's no other way to sort of describe them. Men that I sort of feel privileged to have in my life now who are, one, you know, great friends, great collaborators. And, and I never think, they, they never, ever, ever undermine me in any way. They just support me in my vision. And I've maybe I'm lucky like that or maybe I just look for the right people like that but I just and once you've got and the other thing about the sort of however much you don't we're in a hierarchy on a film set it does exist in structure and because every head of department has a team and once you have that sort of man next to you as a head of department it's an incredible example for the people then working in that department so whether they be men or women if you have a totally collaborative you know, the structures, men, essentially, the hierarchy being these men working to me as a woman, it's an, with such good grace and collaboration and respect. It shows such a strong, it's such a strong symbol back. And we didn't have any, not that I saw, you know, and particularly within my sort of immediate team, there was nothing that ever felt like any of us weren't being in any way questioned or undermined as a woman. And I have been through that in commercials on set. I have had... And luckily, I've always had the right people alongside me. The thing that's very different about advertising is you take your head of department, but then you pick, often you shoot abroad and you pick up a new crew every time. So you don't know everyone. And I have had situations where, and it's often technical, where I'm like, I want the camera to do this, you know, on, on the crane or whatever I want. And the guy operating the crane, it's always a guy, will be like, no. Nah. I'll be like, yeah, no, that's what we're going to do. No, no, won't work, darling. Like, yeah, no, it will. No, it's not going to work. No. Or, I, you know, I've, I've been barking instructions. I don't like to get angry on something, you know, like, like fucking pan up. <laughs> They're not doing it. And then the DP stood next to me is a man going, pan the camera up. And it goes up. And it's like, <sighs> but the greatest thing that can happen in that situation is that the guy standing next to you who is their boss reprimands them or fires them, not you. And I know it sounds crazy, but it's, it's the biggest sort of like the illustration of this doesn't fly. Yeah. Because what's expected is a bit of a like wink, wink, nudge, nudge. All right, mate. She doesn't know what the fuck she's doing, does she? She's a woman. But it does, they don't get it back. What they get back from the guys I work with is like, you're an idiot. You're not doing your job and you're not listening to the boss. So you're fired. <laughs> Which is kind of, yeah. and I work with these men. I really, you know, I've always sort of surrounded myself with these, luckily, with these kind of collaborators. And I just think that they're, I'm really blessed. You'll talk to probably, you know, another hundred women and maybe not get this story because I know there's all sorts of horror stories for women who are directors, but I've just been um, kind of deliberately trying to cultivate that. Like really, and, and a very, really, like I said, it's really important for me to have other perspectives. So I don't want to cut men out of the picture 
we won't tell good stories if we do that yeah exactly mm-hmm. you know i'm not it's like i just want some sort of form of equality and as a woman it's like uh, i want to have other women around when I'm working but i also equally want to have great men around yeah and i want all sorts of perspectives i you know i want, I want them from all, all different places yeah, because that's how we tell the stories, right? That's like mm-hmm. what makes, oh, and as an audience, that's what you want to see. You yeah, want I think you don't you can just see want it from difference. one point. You can definitely see the difference in a in in work that's been created with that complete like cohesive team. You can tell. You can tell if something's been made, and you're like, oh god, you can like some bits. There's just an element of jarring, and you can mm-hmm. sense when the team's not been had each other's backs yeah i think you can yeah totally and filmmaking is mad you know it's like literally it takes hours and hours and hours and you you have no life you just write off your life for however long uh, it is and you you just you form these such strong relationships work relationships friendships you know camaraderies and like really it you really go through things together, you know, the levels of exhaustion, the levels of like neurosis, the levels of like energy. And, and, and if you can kind of get into that formation together and it's fair. And I, I guess I learned the lesson again quite recently, but the energy and it's, it's a lesson that I did that sort of didn't want to accept because it's almost too much, too much weight, but the energy that you project at the top will seep down and it's a lot of responsibility but basically if you are inspiring and energetic and positive and always projecting forward your team will come with you and that and the reason why that's a lot of responsibility is because some days you wake up and you're like i can't fucking do that added on to like the stress of like what i've got to do today and the scene and you know and you feel inward and you feel maybe you're sick and you're tired and you're angry and things aren't working but you realize again really quickly that if that's projected the energy from the top down is the same and it's it's a horrible power but also a brilliant power <laughs> you know but it's it, it, i may be making it sound bigger than it is but over a long sort of period of time and and um it, it it's yeah, it's really important that you can be vulnerable as well as a director and that you can at times be like tired or angry or pissed off about something or, you know, or just at the end. Because if you've been sort of generous and gracious with your team, they'll be right there, like basically putting your arms right over their shoulders and pulling you up. Yeah. But if you haven't, they won't. <laughs> they'll let you sink. Yeah, that's I love it. That's what needs to happen oh. in the industry as a whole, though. Overall, like mm-hmm. we just, if we can we need to have each other, each other, then it's really important. Um, I am so aware, Georgie, that like it's Saturday afternoon and you're giving up your time for us, and like we're at an hour. <laughs> no, no worries. Although I'm like, I want to talk more and more and more, but um, I think what we'll do is we'll finish off. So we ask people what persistent and nasty means to them. Um. And I'm going to say this bit just for you and I'm going to cut it out because honestly, if people listen to the podcast weekly, they're going to be like, fucking shut up, Elaine. We know why. What does persistent and nasty mean to you? <laughs> well, I think persistent is sort of inherently like my MO. It's like what you have to be if you want to achieve anything really that you're passionate about, along with probably a few other things like curiosity and tenacity. But persistence is like, 
that you got it. Don't give up. No one's going to hand you anything. You're only going to hand it to yourself. So be persistent at all times. It's, it's, a, it's a great mantra, I think, is the word. Um, and nasty, it's like you said, I mean, Trump has made it the best word in the world because, I mean, if these incredible, phenomenal, powerful, uh, inspiring women are nasty, then sign me up, you know? That's what I want to be. That's, that's the word that I want to own. It's like, it belongs to me too. If it belongs to them, you know, let's own it. What a wonderful Absolutely. way to be described. Yay! <laughs> I love that. This is I, mean, so I love it. Um, think I might be a little bit in love with you, George. Just you know, <laughs> totally hey, we've only just met. I mean, I know, but if but you I'm went like, to the pub, I'd take you for a stop. drink. Fully <laughs> <laughs> totally inspired. Totally. Yeah, if you. I can't if wait you to can bring in the Scottish weather. I know. <laughs> I'll put on my I'll put on my CNN bulletproof vest, right? I was <laughs> for the cold. <laughs> when I was in, I want to get a drink, and I want you to tell me the Hezbollah story because <laughs> you he, know that's for another time. Ah, war stories, <laughs> the good old days. <laughs> Your war um, stories of old. <laughs> yeah, I, w- I, w- I want to hear them all. Um, Georgia, you're fucking brilliant. And, uh, oh, well, oh, it's very kind of you. Thank you. Thank you. So grateful that um, we got this chance to chat to you and um, can't wait to see uh, I Hate Susie. I mean, yes, let me know what you think. Fans already. I can tell I'm going to love it. So, um, well, even if you don't, I want to hear the good, the bad, and everything in between. So, yeah, that's the only way you learn, you know? Yeah, only learn when you understand. Sorry, it's my bad thing. I am totally truthful and it doesn't always help, but uh, hey, (laughs) (laughs) can I double check where we can watch this just as a shout for the listeners so they know where to find this? Yes. So it launches at 9 o'clock, 9 p.m. on Thursday, 27th of August, so next Thursday, um, on Sky Atlantic and Now TV. And you'll be able to watch two episodes live, one and two, on Sky Atlantic at that time. And then after that, you can watch it all as a box set on Sky or Now TV. Or you can watch it weekly. It's two hours. But nobody's going to do that. Just cram it. Thanks so much for having me. It's really great to chat. I'm so, I just, I never stop talking. So I'm sorry if it's like, it's It's absolutely gorgeous. Misha and I've got to attempt to try and do our little sign off now together, which is ridiculous. Wait wait for this. (laughs) I'm excited. I'm excited. It's like, we should just give up but it's no we're not giving up because every time it's hilarious hilarious. thanks so much everyone for listening and And stay stay nasty nasty. we fucking got it in time See, when I, on my end, it sounds like I said it and then you said it. But if no, it I, no, too... you said it together. It was great. I mean, take one, we're done. Let's move on. <laughs> one take wonders. We're <laughs> professionals. It's only taken us six fucking months. But <laughs> Me again, just a couple of things. We would really love it if you would sign up to our newsletter. We have got some really interesting stuff coming up. We don't send them out very often, but when we do, it's usually something really important that we want to share with you. You can do that by going to our website, Facebook, etc. And if you're really struggling, even just send us a wee email. As always, follow us on all social media. So Twitter at Persistent Nasty, Instagram at Persistent and Nasty, Facebook Persistent and Nasty. Send us a wee email to persistentandnasty at gmail.com. And also 
Guys, we'd really love to ask a wee favour of you all. Um, As most of you know, and if you don't, you're going to find out now, we are not funded and we do everything that we can to keep um, Persistent and Nasty going and the podcast going and all the kind of um, work that we do behind the scenes um, in our advocacy work and activism work. So saying all that, we would be extraordinarily grateful if you guys wouldn't mind donating us the price of a coffee maybe once a month or something and we understand that times are tight money is tight and if you can't do that we totally get it so if you wouldn't mind liking subscribing and sharing the podcast commenting it really does make a huge difference to us and for those of you who can um we would be super grateful and if you we will link our PayPal uh, details into um, the description in this episode. Uh, Thank you. We really are amazed and overwhelmed by our community and we are over 10,000 listeners and we are humbled actually that you, you, you like to hear our chat. Thank you for everything. And as always, Stay nasty, beautiful people.